So I want to pick up where we left off in, in 1 John chapter 3. We looked this last week at what it looks like to really think seriously about the incarnation. That is God being with us and for us in Christ. Incarnate means to take on flesh. And so God was not content to sit up there and out there, distant from us, but instead chose to humiliate himself and become like a child, become a baby. A baby that, you know, begins to soil itself. That a baby, God, the divine one, having his posterior wiped by a human, a dirt creature, a human being. So that we would know that God is with us and for us. And when we think about what it means to celebrate that, much of what we begin to think about with respect to Christmas, I would argue, I tried to push this towards you this last week, we'll read through this again and pick up kind of where we left off, parsing this out, seeing what it looks like to be shaped by God being with us and for us. And I would push on you that actually in the Bible, Christmas, that is the incarnation, God being with us and for us, has a lot more in common with, or let me drag you into here, has a lot more in common with Normandy, D-Day, a landed invasion, than it has in common with the average nativity scene. And we come to find out that most of the times when we try to finish this sentence, that it's not really Christmas without whatever you think, fill in the blank, makes Christmas, Right? Christmas lights, trees, fill in the blank. Whatever it is, it makes my family. 1 John 3 tells us that, in fact, it's not Christmas without destruction. Christmas is what it is because God, looking at the world, sent His Son to destroy something. We celebrate Christmas because we know that God wanted something destroyed. God wanted something eliminated. God wanted to destroy the enemies that set themselves against his people. So beginning in verse 28 of 1 John chapter 2, an introduction to chapter 3, we'll start reading. Thinking critically about what it means to celebrate this time of year, and then as it springs us into the new year, we reflect here in verse 28 of chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in him, that is Jesus, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, 
Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Would you join me just briefly praying for our time together? I want to lead us through a, a time of asking God to speak through his word. So if you'd bow with me and begin to pray, I want to, I want to pray over our time here. God, we recognize that apart from you and your work and your word bringing us to life, we are without hope. And now would you just, would you just ask God in a very simple way in your own words, would you ask God that he would speak to you through his word? Would you just ask God, God, please, Work through what is said. Speak to me that it might make sense. And if you would, just in your own words, would you just pray for me? Would you just ask God to anoint and bless me? That God would use me in such a way that I would get out of the way and his word would be remembered. That, that my words would fall away, but his words would remain. God, we need you. We need you to understand this. We need you to find life in this. So begin to speak now and show us the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen. It's not really Christmas unless we really think about the son of God appearing, coming to be with us and for us in order to destroy the works of the enemy. From the beginning, we saw last week, Kind of an overview of the entire Bible is piled into this chapter. We've kind of parachuted into chapter 3 to see what it means to really celebrate the coming and appearing of God in Jesus Christ. From the very beginning, whether you're talking about Genesis 3 or even what John is referring to here, the enemy invites us to join him, that is the enemy, in rebellion. The enemy invites us to join him in rebellion against God. But Jesus invites us to join him in his triumphal procession over the enemy. God sent Jesus to be laid in a manger as a child to destroy something. Such that now Christmas actually has more in common with the language of warfare and destruction than it does with the average Christmas carol. In reality, this is a war. God has sent his son into a war zone. Now the context in the entirety of John's letter here is, is I don't know if you notice, it's, it's an endearing letter of affection from John to multiple times here he says his children, right? So the people he's writing to, the people he's challenging, I want you to see he has a, a deep affection for these people. He has a great love for them, speaks of them in very endearing language. Not, not condescending like, like, oh, you poor little child, but, but as, as a loving and caring father here, John is, at this point when he's writing this letter, probably become kind of like, 
like the, the oldest, and, and, and according to tradition, if all of the disciples were martyred and killed, all that's left, according to tradition, is John. And somewhere later in his ministry, even though John was likely the youngest of the disciples, he outlives the rest of them. Not because people didn't try to kill him. They tried to boil him alive, and it didn't kill him. And that freaked him out so much that they exiled him to uh, an island called Patmos, where he presumably somewhere in this transition, either before or after, wrote these letters to some churches, and then after that, from Patmos, wrote the book of Revelation. So we've kind of dove in here, we've kind of parachuted into chapter 3, and I want you to zoom out a bit, and you'll see that John is writing this letter to people he loves, and he closes at the end of this letter with little children, beware of idols. That is, beware of exalting things that are not God as if they were God. And what had happened up to this point is many people who had called themselves followers of, of Jesus, many people who called, them, called themselves and been called Christians, people who thought they were believers, had fallen away. And so many people were beginning to ask questions. Well, what does it mean? What does it mean that these people who called themselves Christians are no longer following Jesus? That they've fallen away, they've rebelled against God. And Paul writes, excuse me, John writes this letter to show what it really means to love, serve, and follow Jesus. And if you want to know why people have fallen away, you look at what they believe and who they really believe Jesus is. And if you want to see what it means to not fall away, you look at the evidence of a person's faith by looking at their lives. And if we're going to follow Jesus and model our lives after him, as this tells us, then we will be, as it says over and over again, like him. We will become more and more like him. And so here's what I think we ought to do. I, I think we regularly look for excuses to celebrate ourselves. We, rel we regularly look for opportunities to kind of exalt ourselves. But if we read this right, and what God has done in Jesus is to destroy sin, to exalt him, then we join him. So if Jesus came to destroy sin, then we are called to join him in the daily sabotage of sin. If you'll remember C.S. Lewis, we saw this last week, says that ultimately the world is at war, and we are as if, it's as if we're living behind enemy lines. And we've been We've been summoned by our great king and general to join him in his great campaign of sabotage against the enemy. If Jesus came to destroy sin, then following Jesus means that we do the same. We are actively engaging in a campaign of sabotage. If there was one thing that I would say could really mark, really mark something, something amazing for our church in 2018, this would be it. That we devote ourselves to killing sin. We devote ourselves to putting sin to death. If Jesus has come and destroyed sin, killed the enemy, and he's leading us in victorious procession as a, as a victory chant over the enemy, then our lives ought to be, I would say, reminiscent of his great victory over the enemy. If Jesus destroyed sin, then we're now invited to follow Jesus in that great campaign. If he's killed the enemy then now our lives reflect a new kingdom under the rule of a new king. Now here's what I have to push on, especially in this, this holiday. As we, we begin to think about how we think about the, the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, I'm going to just kind of walk through a couple of things that I think are worth meditating on 
and reflecting on, especially in this last week. We usually talk a lot about Christmas, leading up to Christmas or Advent, the coming of Christ, uh, and then we spend very little time apart from that. Now, you'll hear me encourage you with this on Easter or every other, I'm going to put it in quotes here, special occasion. Uh, we want to be very wary of how we celebrate certain holidays. Paul talked to the Corinthian church about the same thing, like, be careful about how you emulate these people and kind of exalt these days and these months and these, these events. And, and here's the way I would put it to you, like, if you only say love and show affection to your significant other on Valentine's Day, uh, then you're doing it wrong. And in fact, if you make a, like if you're, if you're not loving, affectionate, and caring all the year, but on Valentine's Day, you throw like you, you, you pull out all the stops, and then you're loving and caring and affectionate. I don't want to burst your bubble here, but you've actually been kind of lying to yourself, and you're outing yourself on Valentine's Day. And, and it's, you're going to make yourself look all the worse. Like, if you're especially loving on Valentine's Day, it will just draw into relief how unloving you've been the rest of the year. So as Christians, we're very careful about this. We don't celebrate the coming of Christ once a year. We don't celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ once a year. We are a gospel people. The story of God's love for us in Christ is something we reenact and live out every single day, experiencing new birth, new life, a death to our old self, and a resurrection of a new creation that glorifies Christ. Every day, every moment. So as you reflect on maybe how you've celebrated Christmas this last week, I want you to maybe think seriously about some sinful tendencies that we have. I'll put it under this heading. We regularly look for excuses to celebrate ourselves and honor our own idols. Regularly. And we are so self-deceived that we often celebrate ourselves and exalt and express our affection to our homemade idols. We're so self-deceived about it that we'll even call it things that it is not. Now, I try to push this on you on a regular basis. The, the effects of living in a fallen and broken and sinful world, the effects of being sinful people, corrupt even our consciousness, even our self-awareness, such that we are regularly deceiving ourselves. Now, I joke about this, but it points to a deeper and more painful reality. We live in a culture currently where you can say, no offense, and then proceed to be offensive. But as long as you lie to yourself at the beginning of the sentence and say, no offense, then it somehow justifies the offensive things you say next. You seen this? And we say things like, well, you know, he's not a bad person. Uh, and and, that, and that, that phrase, he's not a bad person, is almost always either right before or right after telling about a person who did something awful. Well, he did all these awful things. He's not a bad person. It's like, okay, time out. He either did these awful things or he's not a bad person. Which is it? The two cannot be true at the same time. But we currently live in a day and age where, that, where we think that's okay. And you'll hear people say, well, I'm not one to complain. Like, no one thinks that. You complain all the time. I promise you. And if someone, I want to warn you, if someone says, hey, I'm not a bad person, I want to encourage you, that, that is right before or after they tell you how bad they really are. And we, as Christians, are just, since we're gospel people, the truth has set us free. We actually believe there's freedom in the truth, even hard truth. And one of the ways we deceive ourselves are the ways that we commemorate occasions. And I think I can make a strong case that we often celebrate things in such a way that are utterly 
counterintuitive. They are completely counterproductive. Sin causes us not only to be self-deceived, but to celebrate events and celebrate things in ways that are counterproductive. You should feel the effects of this, right? Just a, a little while ago, maybe, you know, what, six, eight, six, seven weeks ago, we celebrated Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. A moment where we stop and we're thankful for what we have. A moment where we stop and we're content with what we've been given. We experience gratitude for what we have. And before the day is even over, it used to be Black Friday, now it's like it's crept into... Before the day is even over, we celebrate our contentment with what we have by what? Hungering and shopping for more. Don't miss the, the deep, sinful self-deception that's going on there. We're so thankful. Let's go, let, I mean, let's, let's cause a riot to get into Walmart to get more. Right? Do, do, you get, do, you, do you get how counterproductive and counterintuitive that is? And yet we really believe that that is part of celebrating Thanksgiving. I mean, don't miss the joy, the joy-robbing nature of this. It will steal your soul because you will have thought, I was thankful this week. I got in line at, you know, four in the morning or I left Thanksgiving dinner to be at Best Buy at five o'clock to get that thing or whatever that is for you. Or like you're, you're I mean, this, for me, it's just like reading the, 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 the circulars like, oh, wow, I could get one of those. That'd be awesome to do that project that I'll never actually do, Right. Maybe just me. That, that's where I, instead of experience Thanksgiving by, by tearing that up and going, I don't need this. I'm content with what I have. How do we celebrate our thankfulness? By hungering for more. See how counterintuitive that is? Oh, friend, it's everywhere. Think about this. We celebrate, this, this is the worst. We celebrate weddings with things called bachelor parties or bachelorette parties. And we celebrate this commitment, this self-sacrifice that's, that's in the covenant of marriage by doing a bunch of things that actually are awful and antithetical to healthy marriage. This ought to sting. Do you feel, do you feel like, like and, and we call, man, we're celebrating, we're preparing him for marriage. By, by what? Doing things that are utterly unfaithful and awful we're preparing her for marriage by what like teasing her with all these awful have you been a part have you been invited to one of these things and it's like by bachelor party if you mean no one's going to be getting married after this and there's going to everyone's going to still be a bachelor or bachelorette after this yeah that maybe that's appropriately called but we actually prepare for marriage with this anti-marriage festival it's everywhere from christmas thanksgiving my favorite's coming up here. Uh, before the season of Lent begins, we celebrate what's called the, the, the church historically. Sorry, again, this is where it's awful. The, like, these are religious ideas <laughs> celebrated in unreligious ways. Um, before Ash Wednesday, the beginning of the season of Lent, a time in which we think about Jesus enduring temptation and persecution and self-denial. Jesus fasted in the wilderness and was tempted by the enemy. And we celebrate the fasting of Jesus by doing what? Feasting. Fat Tuesday. The, the phrase we celebrate, uh, or the way we do this in America, that, 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 that transliterated is Mardi Gras. An obese Tuesday. We celebrate fasting 
by gluttony. And, and this is the worst part, we do this all under the auspices of religious language. The way this is celebrated in Brazil, again, this is a religious, oh, this is a religious, we're celebrating self-denial and, and Jesus enduring temptation and enduring hunger for the sake of God's glory, and we celebrate this hunger through feasting. And in Brazil, this is known as carnival, because one of the customs that most people might have, might have inherited for, for the season of Lent is not eating meat. And carnival, if you know any of your Latin or Spanish, carne meaning meat, is a celebration of meat before a time of no meat. Just think about that. We're going to inaugurate a time of meatlessness with lots of meat. I mean, you're setting yourself up for failure. I can't even show you pictures of the ways that people celebrate carnival because they're inappropriate. That, and so what is a religious holiday to celebrate God's goodness over us is now is now celebrated in such a way that's so licentious. It's like so, it's, it's so salacious. It's awful. I can't, even, I can't even tell you what it is. And I don't even encourage you, I don't even encourage you to Google it. We typically look for opportunities to celebrate a thing as really as an excuse to celebrate ourselves. And there's probably no worse place than Christmas. Probably no worse place to celebrate what it is that God has done for us in Christ than Christmas. There's nothing short of humiliation for Jesus to take on flesh. Nothing short of utter and complete humiliation. He becomes the curse to redeem us from the curse. And I worry, often, we actually enjoy Christmas because we're using it as an excuse to celebrate ourselves. For the most part, it has now become a completely child-driven holiday. It is child-centered. Almost all of, I mean, really push into this, almost everything we celebrate at Christmas is geared towards childishness. And instead of like being content in the gift of God in Christ, we celebrate Christmas with very, very lavish materialism and consumerism. It becomes a child-centric holiday. We don't imagine Jesus on the cross. We don't see him as Lord. We just really like the thought of babies. And I worry that instead of really seeing Jesus as a risen Lord, as he currently is, Christmas is an excuse to simply exalt our own nostalgia in the end so much of what we celebrate as Christmas, the coming of Jesus, isn't, as we see here in John, 1 John chapter 3, the destruction of sin, but it's a, we simply revert to like childhood memories such that most people, when they celebrate Christmas, they would finish that sentence. It's not Christmas without, and I promise you, whatever they would fill it in is actually some like reverberation of childhood memory, longing for days past. We don't imagine Jesus as he is now, exalted and lifted high. Instead, it becomes, I, I would argue, most of what we do surrounding the celebration of Christmas, I think is actually meant to create a palatable version of the gospel for the people at the expense of what I would argue is a crossless Christianity. I mean, think about it. Nobody talks about suffering at Christmas. No one celebrates 
Jesus lowering himself to be born in a very common place with an well, not noteworthy or, or not recognizable people. There's no humiliation. In fact, there's mostly just the alleviation of suffering. And it's not even a significant suffering. It's a very superficial suffering. Listen to the way we think about how we want to help other people celebrate Christmas. Well, those poor people, they're not going to have what this Christmas? Fill in the blank with your idol. They're not going to have presents to open. Oh, you mean they're not going to be like riddled with the idol of materialism? Not, not pity them, pity us. Pity us that Christmas is the moment where we do the greatest evangelism for commercial America. That's it. We're like, oh, poor them. They're not going to celebrate in the, in, the, in, the, in the consumerism and the materialism. Do you see it? Do you get it? We, we, <laughs> we take a thing and we celebrate a thing by usually doing the anti-thing. It's counterproductive, counterintuitive. And if we're celebrating that God lowers himself and empties himself to become with us and for us, a landed invasion to destroy our enemies, then it ought to change the way we celebrate holidays. So ask yourself this question. How did you celebrate Jesus coming to be with us and for us this last week? Seriously, what did you really exalt? How did you commemorate the occasion of God landing the invasion to liberate us from sin, death, and hell? How'd you celebrate it? If an alien landed in, your, in the midst of your celebration, what would they think? What would they think you really love? What would they think you really adore? Again, this isn't meant to like harm you. It's meant to redirect your affections toward a greater understanding of the coming of Jesus. I shared, with this with you, uh, shared this with you last week. If you're in this room and you're just purely nostalgic and sentimental around Christmas, I want to rob that from you. I want to pick that apart and, and take that away from you and give you something better. But maybe if you're on the other side and you're just a Grinch and you're angry because all these people are all happy and you hear the song like, it's the most wonderful time of the year and that makes you nauseous, I'm going to rob that from you as well. There's something greater. There's something bigger going on here. There's something much greater and bigger and more substantive than your nostalgia and your sentimentality. And there's much more going on than just the thing that annoys you. It's Jesus landing an invasion to liberate his people forever. So, did you celebrate Christmas in light of that? Or are you like me, and I don't know a better word for this, I, I, there's, probably, there's probably a better, I don't know, more, more dignified way, but are you like me, and you just, you, after Christmas has run over, you feel hung over, like worn out. Friend, if this is a celebration of God's victory over our enemies, I think, I think it ought to look a bit different. We shouldn't just idolize babies because they make us feel good and exalt ourselves around Christmas. We should think about what Jesus endured to become like us, to redeem us. This ought to even change the way we celebrate the new year. For most people, the new year is simply an anti-gospel in which they tell themselves, I'm going to earn my salvation this year. I'm going to do better. I'm going to be awesome. And you know what's going to happen. No, 2008 is going to look exactly like 2017. The same you exist. Like, you're not transformed 
when midnight strikes on New Year's Eve. The ball drops and you still are you. And so I, I would even argue the way we celebrate New Year is, is, is a way of just kind of propping ourselves up and, and starting. it's kind of like a pep rally. You do better, earn God's favor this year. But if what we really celebrate is commensurate with what Jesus has done, then it'll look different. And that means that, as I shared with you, if Jesus came to destroy sin, then especially our celebration of Christmas or the coming of Jesus ought to reflect that destruction of sin. And Christmas for us ought to be an active engagement of our sinful tendencies. Look what he came to destroy. See what love we have here. There's two different parts of this. The first is that we become more righteous and pure in our actions as a result of understanding what Jesus appeared to do. I'll I'll tackle another one here. It says twice in this. Did you catch that? He appeared to do something. He appeared to take away sins. Get that? He's like going to rob us of sin, take away the thing that kills us, our disease. He's like a, a surgeon removing the cancer. He's removing the disease. What does it mean to be saved other than that you were in danger and now you're not? He's removing the disease. And then secondly, he appeared so that he would destroy the works of the enemy. And we talked about these in depth this last week, but I'll just add a little, a little thing that I want to talk about every Christmas uh, time and every chance I get. Um, notice what he's saying here. That phrase, appeared, he became visible. That is that Jesus wasn't, it wasn't just created at Christmas. Jesus, who is consubstantial, one with the Father, came to be with us and for us in the incarnation. This is important, and it has to do with Christmas. It has to do with a character you, you think about regularly at Christmas. His name is Santa Claus. Now, there are a lot of conflicting beliefs about Santa. But basically, Santa Claus, this is a, again, the, the language has changed his name to Saint Santa and Claus, short for he used to be Nicholas. That was his name, Saint Nicholas. And I would encourage you, there's a lot of, well, again, bad information about what Santa does or does not do around Christmas. But Saint Nicholas was a real person. and He was awesome. Now, we know very little about him. But what we do know is he was a priest in modern-day Turkey. But he was also, at that particular time in the life of the church, considered a bishop. That means he helped plant churches to reach people who didn't know Jesus. That's who St. Nicholas was. And we know that he was present at the Council of Nicaea in the 3rd century. And there happened to be a person, now I encourage you, talk to my daughters about this and see how well we've kind of commemorated this every Christmas. We don't know much else about Santa. That's the most that we know. And that's why... Again, I don't want to burst your bubble. I'm not going to like ruin your belief about Christmas and Santa here. That's why there's a lot of different beliefs about St. Nicholas. A lot of conflicting reports. And some of you have probably some deep convictions about what you do or do not believe about this St. Nicholas. Let me tell you what we actually know. He was a man who loved Jesus. And at the Council of Nicaea, there was a man by the name of Arius. And he came along and taught that Jesus did not appear, but Jesus was created. Jesus wasn't divine and of God. Instead, Jesus was another man, born, and then God gave him some special gifts. And this man, Arius, believed that Jesus was not God. And he was opposed and cast out as a heretic. Now here's where the legend starts. And since there's so many legends that go around about Santa Claus, this St. Nicholas, if you're going to believe a legend about St. Nicholas, at least believe this one. 
According to tradition, St. Nicholas was thrown in prison after this meeting. And he was thrown in prison because at this meeting, when Arius stood up and said that Jesus was not God, St. Nicholas struck him in the face. Now, the word is struck. Uh, we don't know if he slapped. Like, I, I don't know if he pulled a glove off and, you know, I don't know, I don't know if he punched. I don't know if there was a fist involved. But whatever, it was being presided over by Constantine. And whatever happened... Uh, got St. Nicholas thrown in jail. Now, if you're going to believe something that's maybe not completely substantiated about St. Nicholas, man, that's something I want to encourage you to think about. St. Nicholas had high Christology and apparently was the kind of person that people expected a punch from if they spoke blasphemously about Jesus. Incorporate that, I, mean, I don't know how to do incorporate that into your Christmas tradition, right? Right? Have fun. <laughs> Santa came to visit. To do what? Evidently, Santa's the Saint Nicholas that we know came to defend the name of Christ. He loved people and shared the gospel with people. The legends we hear is that there were some, evidently, there were, there were some women who were on the verge of being into prostitution. And so St. Nicholas came along and paid money and put, them, put money secretly in their shoes sitting outside of their house so that they wouldn't have to sell themselves into prostitution, but that they would have a dowry to be married. All right, this, this, this is St. Nicholas. Why do I say that? I don't know if you caught that word in there. Twice. Jesus appeared, became visible. This picture of the incarnation that Jesus was not just created, that Jesus was a plan B, is something St. Nicholas was willing to fight for. Merry Christmas. Right? Jesus was not a creation. Jesus is not a plan B. When, when the world falls and you and I sin, God isn't up there freaking out going, what do we do now? Well, we got to come up with a plan B. Let's send Jesus. It turns out that before we even fell, before even the foundation of the world was laid, Jesus was already being sent to be an atoning sacrifice so that he appears in the incarnation. That's a Christmas story. He appears to do something. High Christology, St. Nicholas, again, have fun. Such that when he appears, he takes away sin, and then we're invited. Did you catch that language there? We're invited to join him. We purify ourselves. And then the second thing is we are born again. We have a new life. We have been born of God. And the new life that we have, marked by practicing righteousness and not continuing to sin, is the evidence that we have been made new. We are a new creation. Something else has happened. The hope of being like Christ in the future expresses itself in an effort to purify oneself in order to be like him in the present. Again, this, this attacks that tendency, doesn't it? This attacks that tendency to celebrate a thing by the anti-thing. Right, if you're really celebrating thankfulness at Thanksgiving, then you, <laughs> then, you won't, then you won't on that day or the next day just kind of long for stuff. Express your, your discontentment. Same thing here. If, if ultimately Jesus is making us like him in the future, he's coming back for us, then that will play out in the way that we live now. 
We want to look more like him. Now, as you were reading through that, you probably caught some of that language that was really strong. No one who's born of God continues sinning or makes a practice of sinning. No one who continues sinning is born of God. And that seems like pretty harsh language. That ought to have made you feel very uncomfortable. Now, what I want to encourage you, this doesn't mean that, that it's not advocating for the achievement of sinless perfection. And there are two reasons. One reason is if you just flip back to chapter 1 of this particular book, we find out that God has sent to Jesus to do something for us and that no one who says that they are without sin is speaking truthfully. And it says if you claim to be without sin, that is if you claim to have sinless perfection, then you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So this isn't about being completely and perfectly sinless. And the way we understand this is in the broader context of 1 John is that if, he, if you think that, if you say, no, this is about me being sinless, I am now sinless, well, John tells you, well, you're a liar, lying is a sin, stop sinning, sinner. And, and, and we know this isn't about sinless perfection, but instead, the second reason we know that isn't the case, not just because we see this in the context, but there's some, I'm going to get nerdy for a minute here, the, the tense of these verbs implies a continuous action, a carrying on of sorts. Not no one who has ever sinned is not born of God, but one who makes a practice of sinning can't be born of God. And this is what this means for us. It means as we celebrate the coming of Jesus to be with us and for us, we position ourselves against the thing he came to destroy, that is sin rebellion against God. Does that mean you become perfect? No. Not until Jesus comes back. But it means that the more we see him, the more we look like him. And the more we put on righteousness. Now the word we saw this in 1 Thessalonians, you should be very familiar with this. This word is sanctification. That is the growing in holiness. And it involves two different parts that the, you'll see some of the church fathers talk about. The mortification, that is the putting of death of sin, and vivification, the putting on of life-giving things. And you see them both here. Did you catch them? We put on righteousness. We literally practice righteousness, getting better at it, improving, living out righteousness. And then we throw off things that are pure. That is the the, the purpose of, or the, the, the task of purifying oneself is to throw off and washing off things that are impure. That is the putting off of evil, putting to death of sin, and the putting on of life-giving righteousness. Now, this is important because I want to, to stop for a moment. You'll hear me say this regularly, um, and, and I'll just say it this way. A lot of people think that the process of being a, a Christian and being more holy is, is like a farmer who just rips up weeds. And that's a helpful view of mortification, that we see evil and we want to rip it up at the root. We apply the gospel to the deepest areas of our, of our lives. But here's what I want to push on you, if that, if, that, if that begins to cause like despair in you. Just because you're really good at pulling up weeds doesn't make you a good farmer. If you had a plot of land and you cleared it of weeds, that doesn't make you a good farmer. That makes you a good weed puller but you're not fruitful. And don't miss that the purpose of the Christian life is not just the purification, the throwing off of that which is unholy, the ripping up of weeds, but as the agricultural terms that Jesus likes to use regularly, it's to be fruitful, to bring about acts and practices of righteousness. 
And you'll probably tend one way or the other. You'll be obsessed with pulling up weeds in your life, probably more pharisaical, like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Or you're really just excited about doing good things. And you're probably more like the younger son, more licentious. You kind of do your own thing. Don't miss that following Jesus, being shaped into his image, involves both. It's putting off of things that don't look like Jesus and putting on things that do. We purify ourselves. We look more and more like him. Such that the evidence of being born of him translates into actual practices of righteousness, actual putting to death of sin. If Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy, then we join in that campaign of sabotage, and God is doing something. The devil apparently here is essentially trying to undo God's work by turning people aside from doing God's will, that is, causing them to sin. And Jesus came to destroy it and to give them new life. We are now, multiple times here, God's children. So, we act like it. Start looking like your dad. That is, God our Father. Stop looking like your dad. That is, Adam. James 1 puts it this way. This language we see here of the word of God bringing us new life and having a new sense of family. Do not be deceived, James tells us. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Do you hear the language of family? The same as John was telling us, right? You're, you're children of God. That's what we are. We know this. With whom it is in, in the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow or due to change. God, God is perfect, doesn't change. Verse 18, of his own will, that is by his choosing, he brought us forth by what? The word of truth. That phrase brought us forth is the same language we see here of being, being born of God, being adopted, chosen, brought into his family. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So here's what this means. If God coming to be with us and for us in Christ changes at least the way we celebrate Christmas, which I want you to think about at least you know, in the year to come, it also changes what we do for the rest of the year. Now it's usually appropriate for people to make certain New Year's resolutions, but I want to encourage you, don't celebrate the New Year in a way that's anti-gospel. Instead, we celebrate the New Year as a reflection of what we've just celebrated that God's done for us in Jesus. God sent Jesus, destroyed the works of devil. He did it. Now we're just in faithful procession behind him. So this is what this means for us. I want to, you, you hear me say this language on a regular basis, but if I could give us a resolution, I'll, I'll point you in the direction of some helpful resources. I encourage you to Google Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. And he added to the list, but... If you want to make some New Year's resolutions, I encourage you, take his. Here's his first one. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages 
hints. The second half, this is only one resolution. So I to put your resolution to shame. Lift up and raise the bar for New Year's resolutions. Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good of good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this. I love this phrase. Whatever difficulties I meet with. How many and how great soever. Resolve to live for the glory of a victorious king. Here's the second one. Resolved, it's a corollary to the first one, to be continually endeavoring to find out some new invention and contrivance to promote the aforementioned things. I'm going to live for God's glory and put off all that isn't glorious and drawing attention to Jesus, the second resolution. I'm going to think of new ways to do that first thing all the time. I'm going to think of creative and innovative ways to bring glory to Christ. Here's where it lands here as we think about living in such a way that we put off sin and put on righteousness. The eighth one, he says, resolve to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others. And that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. When we see brokenness in the world, Edward says we think of that as a moment that we're resolved to be reminded of God's mercy over our own brokenness. And instead of looking at it and going, well, pity them, we say, man, thank God that in his mercy he has saved us. And he uses these moments, I don't know if you caught this, as an occasion to do exactly what John calls us to do, to purify ourselves, to put on righteousness, and bring all that is impure to the light to put off practices of sinning. Here's the good news. This is what it means, I think, for you and I, is that if if these resolutions are right and our disposition in Christ is right, and this ongoing picture of sinning and putting off of sin and putting on of righteousness is helpful for us, then this is what this will look like for you. You may continue to sin. You may be sinning right now, but you're not okay with it. You're not comfortable with it. God has done something here. He has brought about a new birth in you. And the way I would summarize it is this. God works a change in us in order that we cannot be content to go on sinning. The resolutions we make aren't about doing better necessarily, but they are the resolutions to look more intently at Jesus, see him for what he is, such that our appetites are greater for him and lesser for other things. We look at Jesus, and our appetites are stirred, and our affections are exalted for him, and our appetites and affections for other things start to look silly. We are now his family, and we're like Jesus. We're looking more and more like him every day. And since Jesus came to destroy sin, then the work of our family now is to do the same. To destroy sin, to put on righteousness. To live as people adopted and changed. People brought forth by God's word. A new creation brought about by this good news of God's victory over sin and death in Christ. You're a walking miracle. Your birth is a miracle. Ever heard of someone who wasn't supposed to be alive? Some doctor said this baby's not going to survive or live past a certain date, and we marvel at this often. But I want to encourage you, marvel at this. You were dead. You shouldn't be alive. But by God's command, you are. 
you should be buried in sin, a lifeless spirit, but by God's command, you're now alive. Now we live accordingly. Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil. Now we follow him accordingly. You made it through 2017. Congratulations. I didn't know if I was going to. But you didn't make it because you're awesome. You made it because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And we agreed together to resolve to live accordingly. Instead of a resolution then, what we find in 1 John chapter 3 is to ask questions, what sin do you want God to destroy in your life in 2018? What sin do you want to see victory over in your life in 2018? What do you want Jesus to begin to put to death in you? And what righteousness do you want Jesus to begin to clothe you in? And make that a resolution. Now, tonight at 11.59, and every single moment going forward, because now that we have been born of God our Father, we look like Jesus. We are ferocious enemies of sin. We have less and less appetite for the thing that put our Savior on the cross. And we see the things around us that draw us away from him as the thing that nailed him to the cross. I'm going to offer a word of warning here for parents. Often the reason that kids rebel, often the reason that kids kind of grow up and abandon the life of Christ is because they've never seen this particular thing. 2018, you let your children in to the sin that Jesus is putting to death in you. Let your children in to seeing the righteousness that Jesus is putting on you. Or you can go back to that trying to be perfect. Maybe in 2008, maybe that's where you're going to go ahead, try this again this year. I'll see you again next year, right? I'm going to be perfect this year. Good luck. What if instead we invited people into seeing the ways in which Jesus is putting to death the old self and bringing about righteousness? This means that, and I have to lead in this way, on a regular basis, I say, I'm the chief of sinners. I tell my children, look, I see this sin in you, but it's not because you're awful. It's because I know what that looks like in myself. Let me tell you what God is doing. Would you help me and pray for me, even as your father, to lead in this way? I'll leave with this thought. We're in this partnership of being like Jesus, and God is drawing us into purity and putting on righteousness and putting off the old self. In essence, it's like we're singing a duet, if you will, with Jesus. Now imagine, if you will, imagine you were going to sing a public duet with the greatest singer in the world. The greatest singer of all time. Whoever that is for you. I don't want to even like ruin your thought. Like, well, I don't know, maybe that's Janis Joplin. I don't know. Favorite singer, Celine Dion. Greatest singer in the whole world. Wherever that is for you. Garth Brooks, because maybe they're famous or they just, you love them. Just think of that person. Greatest singer. This is the most amazing singer in the world. And you've been invited to share the stage with the greatest singer in the world and sing a duet. What should you do in that moment? Boy, if you can at all, you want to let that person stay center stage. Center stage. And maybe sing a little bit of harmony 
Maybe. Other than that, you want to do everything you can to get out of their way and let them be the greatest singer in the world. Friend, Jesus has come and destroyed the enemy and is now inviting us into this campaign of destroying his works day by day. You can jump center stage and pretend like you can do it for him, or you can just be the person who, as best you can and as humbly as you can, draws attention to him. And maybe at moments sing a little bit of harmony, not the kind of harmony that upstages the finished work of Jesus, but the kind of harmony that makes him look even better. And that, that would be something that people would marvel not at our goodness, but did you catch what we'll look like? The thing that will be marvelous about us is that we won't even be us. The most beautiful thing about you will be that you look like him. And the most amazing thing about us currently doesn't come from us. The 37th resolved to inquire every night as I'm going to bed wherein I have been negligent what sin I may have committed and wherein I have denied myself and also at the end of every week every month and every year what if that was the kind of resolution to uproot all that is not Christ-like and to Encourage and fertilize all that is like Jesus in the days, weeks, months, and year to come. Let's pray. God, more than anything else, we thank you for your finished work on our behalf. Uh, we thank you so much that destroying the enemy has not been left up to us. We thank you that you have come to do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. Our first response, God, is, is to confess and to admit. We just we don't remember that often. We confess even this last week as we've quote-unquote celebrated Christmas. We probably were just exalting our own favorite things. We confess that on a regular basis we take good things that you've given us and, and we, we do destructive things with it. We confess that we regularly lose sight of the finished work of your son on our behalf. Would you now begin to, in the mysterious and miraculous way that only you, you can, bring us forth, grant us new life, by this good news of your victory in Christ. If there's some in this room, maybe this is the first time they've ever considered believing, putting faith and trust and hoping in Christ. Maybe this is the first moment they've actually considered that Jesus is who he says he is and he's done what he came to do. Would you even now grant them faith? Let the days and weeks and months to come be marked by new life, like a new creation. In this moment, would you give them the ability to, to express faith and trust? Jesus, you're, you're good. You are who you said you are. For the rest of us, would we now even begin to be reminded, to be restored, not by our own effort, not so that we can try again in 2018, but instead we would use the days and months and weeks to come as reminders of your goodness for us,
we would throw off every hindrance. We would put to death and uproot all the things that don't look like you, Jesus. All the things that make us look like the children of Adam, the children of the devil, we throw off and we begin to put on these marks of new life, righteousness and purity, love, selflessness. May that mark our lives, uh, not only this year, but in eternity. And we ask this in Jesus' name, who alone has the power to save. Amen.